If you have your Bibles, if you'd turn with me, please, to Romans 6. Marking up the text is a big, big deal. I actually talked to a Bible company not too long ago if they would make an edition of, of the New American Standard 95 text, but make it single column, double spaced, one inch margins down the side. And they said, we'll get back to you. <laughs> I think they sent me an email address and said, could you email it to these people? And I think it was like no at gmail.com or something like that. Just kidding. We're in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is one of the foundational growth passages in all of the Bible. Because what it does is it begins to crack open in this incredible book what your identity is in Christ. I don't know that I've come across a chapter in the Bible that has been more impactful personally than Romans chapter 6. But I will tell you this, I had to understand chapters 1 through 5 before 6 made any sense. Sometimes people come in on 6 and they bite down on it expecting to get a lot out of it and they're surprised what they're not able to pull from it. And it's because it is a logical progression in the book. I was talking with somebody last week and they said, Romans is so hard to understand. I said, I promise you it's not. Just start where Paul starts and that's verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. And just follow him and just watch what goes on. And when you find something that you don't understand, stop and pray, meditate. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in how you need to understand and where you need to go with it. Do the work. Get in there with a pen and paper and a concordance and do the hard work in Scripture so that you will reap sound benefits from it. So Paul is entertaining two questions here in Romans chapter 6. Now, if you remember, the big unveiling at the end of chapter 5 is the grace of God can actually reign in your life. You may be someone that's here today that is tired of the sin cycle. That you feel like that all that happens is you do something wrong, you feel bad for it, you come to the Lord, you confess, you wait until you feel the guilt go away so that that way you can live for the Lord once again. And then you find out when you step back and you go, wow, my relationship with the Lord's going really well. You step into a pothole again, and then it becomes this cycle. And what's amazing about this is if we understand Romans 5 and 6 together, Paul is saying it doesn't have to be like that. And so now that Jesus has died for our sins, plural, the offenses we've committed against God, the problem we recognize is that sins are actually the result that comes from a principle that resides in us, and that is sin singular. Now, I'm sure that no one here sinned on the way to church, yes? No one? Great. No hands went up, so I'm, I'm excited about that. You exceeded the speed limit, okay? So you know Romans 13, 1 through 7, right? Praise the Lord. Everybody see how I rebuked him? That was nice. I'm just kidding. He's going to smoke me later on something, I'm sure. It's good. But anyway, what we find is, is that if grace can reign in your life, and if grace always abounds over sin, then should we stay in the vein of sin so that more grace comes our way? Paul says that's completely contradictory to who you are. How many people hate, and I use that word purposefully, hate hypocrites? Be honest. How many people hate it when we're hypocrites? Oh, there's more hands go up. I don't hate hypocrites. What about when you're a hypocrite? Yeah, I hate that. Let me tell you something. You, in the second question, were part of the first question. So your hands should have been up. We hate it when we're looking at something. We're like, man, this is totally going across, against the grain of who I am as a person. This is completely antithetical to who I am and what I believe in the convictions that I hold. And we find that that ends up being a place of extreme uncomfortable, in fact, here's a good word, incongruency. We are completely incongruent 
because we find that we're doing one thing and we really believe something completely different. And I tell you, the reason why that is, is because we lost sight of who we really are and we thought we were somebody else. See, what we find out is the hypocrisy doesn't really start here. It starts here. And that's what Paul wants to root out of us. Now, I don't want to rehash all of six. We've looked at that. But I do want to draw your attention to one verse before we pick up in 12 and read forward. Look at verse 6, chapter 6, verse 6. And this is so important. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The blood of Jesus is what forgives our sins, but it is the cross of Jesus Christ that deals with what we would call our flesh. And the idea is, is that God had to kill us in order for us to be useful for his purposes. He recognized that the old us, the unregenerate us, the devoid of the Holy Spirit us, and when we try to go back and live in that deadness, God can't use it. It's beyond his use. That's one thing that God can't do. God can't use spiritually dead people to be objects of his grace to accomplish his glorious purposes. He can't do that. He won't do that. He refuses to do that. And so what he does is he has his son die for sins, and then he crucifies us in his son on the cross when that happens. Why? So that we will recognize that the flesh will never bring forward anything of eternal value whatsoever, and he raises us to a new life so that Jesus can live through us. That's the goal. Now, we saw that we need to know who we are in Christ. We need to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That's our blessed location. And then we picked up with the idea of presentation. So look at verse 12 with me. Therefore, here it is again. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, its cravings. That's not just talking about chili cheese fries. That's talking about the secret things that we lock up inside, that we try to keep hidden from people. Those attitudes that drive us absolutely furious. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Don't present your body that way. Don't give yourself to that because when you do, the very thing that you were saved from is the ruling partner in that. Get rid of it. Now notice, this is calling the Christian to make a choice. You can do this. This is something that is your personal responsibility to appropriate. I know that I'm dead to sin. I've considered or I've reckoned it to be so. I have a heart conviction that it's true. And now I need to walk forward in consistency with what my identity is because I'm dead to sin. So now look at verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments, as weapons of unrighteousness, but... Present, King James Version says yield is the idea. Present yourselves to, who is it? God. You know what this tells me straight up? This is really good prayer material. Coming before God and presenting myself before him. God, use me today. Do you do that? Is that a mainstay? Is that, is that a, a, a pivotal point in your prayer life? I tell you this, if you go straight for the presenting to God and you bypass the dead to sin and I've reckoned that I'm alive to Christ, you've missed the point because what you're calling on is for God to make your flesh better. Now you've stepped into the idea of works for works sake and they are not to be done in that old identity. It's the new identity. But notice what he says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Notice it's a reality. You are alive from the dead. When I ask the question, how many of you have died? Let me ask you that now. How many of you have died? Boom! There shouldn't be a shadow of a doubt. Now let me ask you this. How many of you have been raised from the dead? Every single believer in here. Now, if you weren't able to raise your hands, come talk to me after church. I would love to talk to you about this. 
Notice what it says here. As those alive from the dead and your members, your body, and remember, the body is something separate from the flesh depending on the context. Your members, your hands, your mind, your eyes, everything as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? For sin shall not be master over you. It's not your dominating factor. For you're, you are not under law, which talks about what we should do for God. You're under grace. And what grace talks about is what God has done for you. Now, here's the second question that's asked here. Paul's anticipating. Remember, they don't have first century text messaging. So whenever Paul is writing, he wants to anticipate. What questions might they have about what I'm talking about? Now, watch this. Question number two, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Now, he just got done saying that, right? You're not under law, you're under grace. Now, notice that even though sin is singular here, He's speaking of committing sin. Does everybody see that? He's not talking about the sin principle. He's talking about the the dirty things that we do, the bad things that we do. So notice, shall we sin? Shall we choose to sin? Shall we do an act of sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. And look at the reply. What is it? May it never be. If Paul had a pulpit, he'd be like, no. I really love the Darby translation. If you ever get a chance, it's free. There's a free app that you can get on your phone. Darby translation. Type it in. It's fun to read. It's good. He says, may it never be. Don't even let your mind go in that direction to think that sin is okay. Why? Let me ask you a question. What relationship does sin have to somebody who lives in a sphere of grace? What relationship does sin have? Do we need it? No, we don't. So if we've been in reality put into a sphere of grace, sin doesn't make sense. The next time the enemy is knocking, and that's about how loudly he knocks until we start to pay attention. What is that? Hey, you ever thought about doing this? Well, can you believe that she wore that today? Well, that guy's got all kinds of problems. Do you know what his family's like? And we have all of this creeping into our ears, wanting to entice us, to tempt us into a way of sin. And this is important. Temptation is not sin. That's important for you to understand. If you're tempted, deal with it right then so that you do not get into sin. Okay. But temptation is not guilty on you. It's the enemy luring you. The enemies are one of the best fishermen ever. If it wasn't Jesus Christ coming along, making fishermen of men, we'd be in great trouble. But he is trying to lure us. He's baiting us to get us to bite. And so when that comes about, what do you do? Wait a second. I'm in a sphere of grace. Why would I sin? It doesn't make sense. Now, here's a question. Is that true? Yeah, I reckon that to be true. I'm dead to that sin. I'm alive to God. Guess what? God, I'm not going to present my mind in this direction. I'm not going to present my mouth to say those things. Instead, I'm going to submit them to you and ask God, what righteous purposes can my body live out for you? Do you realize that your hands can actually do righteous things? They can now, couldn't before, can now. Do you realize that your eyes can look at righteous things? That doesn't mean Christian movies. Understand that. That's a joke. See, I have to tell you it's a joke and then you laugh. That hurts me. So, but here's the thing. You realize that your mind can actually think righteous thoughts. Guess what? Your mind could never think righteous thoughts before. But isn't this all the reason why we're to take every thought captive under Christ? Do you realize before the Holy Spirit indwelled you, you could never take a thought captive. Those thoughts took you captive. See, that's the danger of this. And so now we have this brand new threshold that we've been taken into, into a sphere of grace. And Paul's telling you, here's how you operate here. So sin has no place in it. And look what he says here. Verse 16, do you not know? Now watch this because that word is a derivative of the Greek word oida. And it's the idea of recognizing, understanding something or grasping it. So think of it this way. Paul wants you to get it and think of your hands doing this. He wants you to grab it and to hold on to it. Do you get this? Do you not know this? Do you understand this? This is so pivotal to to get in your mind. Look what he says. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey. Now stop there. And let me say this. And here's one of the greatest problems we have. It's a hermeneutical problem. When we read the word slave, we don't think the word biblical slave. We think of 17 and 1800s America slavery. And that is wrong. That is introducing a more recent contemporary or historic context into the Bible that it never had in its mind. Never. 
we have to think according to what the author wanted us to understand. And if you want to know about what slavery looked like, especially amongst Jewish people and Christian people, the Bible tells you all about it. You just got to get in there and do the work so you understand it the way that the Holy Spirit wants you to understand it. But here's the thing. I say that to say this. Everyone in here is a slave to something. Everyone in here is a slave to something. When Jesus Christ set us free, he didn't set us free so that we could all of a sudden go on spring break and nothing mattered anymore. That we could sin as willfully as we want to, and it's not any big deal. Can you sin as much as you want to as a Christian? Yes, you can. Will you reap consequences for it? Yes, you will. And we have a loving father that understands the importance of discipline, and he will paddle his children. He has no problem bending me over his knee and lighting me up. He will do it. And it will also be costly at the judgment seat of Christ, which you don't want. I would hope that no one in this room would want to stand before the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is going through the account of our lives, knowing that we've had a copy of the word, knowing that we've had the indwelling Holy Spirit, know that we understand our identity in Christ, understanding that we're dead to sin. We're alive to him, that we could actually present ourselves as instruments of righteousness. And instead of doing that, we decided to live for the world and never present ourselves as instruments in righteousness. And next thing you know, we experience shame before him because everything we needed to live a life that was pleasing to him, he freely gave to us and said, just, just use it. Here it is for you. Just use it. Everybody see how tragic that would be? How tragic that would be. I hope you do. I don't want to harp on that, but let's move forward here. Everyone is a slave to something. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. Now watch, he gives you two instances here. Number one, either of sin, and that's the sin principle, resulting in, what is it? Death. Now, there's many people who read this. They say, well, that's spiritual death, okay? And that's our Methodist friends. And we'd say, no, it's not spiritual death. It'd be the idea, well, if you participate in sin or if you sin long enough, you lose your salvation. No, not, that's not the situation. Our Presbyterian friends would say, well, if you participate in sin like that, you show yourself to never be saved to begin with. And that's not what it's saying at all either. The idea is having spiritual ruin in your life or the things that come out are fruitless before the Lord. There's nothing to be gained. It's the idea of being atrophied in your spiritual walk. It is having diminished aptitude. And we'll show that how that plays out in the rest of the chapter here. But notice, resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, is that talking about positional righteousness? No, it's talking about practical righteousness. It's talking about moral righteousness. Do you realize that you can live a righteous life? You can live a righteous life. In fact, let's go a step further. First John's all about this. When you're being obedient to the Lord, you're not sinning. Wouldn't you like to go through life for a period of time and you're not sinning? How fantastic is that? Do you realize that's a reality? God's made it possible. Are you saying sinless perfection? No. As long as we have this flesh hanging on to us, it's never going to happen. But you can actually have periods of your life. In fact, I would say possibly days where you're not committing sin. Why is that? Because every time a temptation comes, you're taking it captive unto Christ. You're recognizing that you're dead to all sin that comes because your mind is so saturated and renewed with the truth that you're engaging every worldly situation and you're abstaining from evil, keeping yourself unstained from the world. It's a possibility. That's what it is to walk in fellowship with the Lord. That's what it is to be pleasing in his sight. So notice, number one, either a slave sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. A good verse to think about that illustrates this. Mitch, you care to bring up Matthew 6. If you want to write it down, Matthew 6, 24, you can write it down right next to that. You're probably familiar with this, but let's just pull it up so that we can read it here. Look what it says. No one can serve two masters. Now think about what we just said. Presenting ourselves to sin, presenting ourselves to God. Think about how Jesus uses it here. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Notice there's no middle ground. You can't have your cake and eat it too. There is no fence to sit on. Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. Notice that Jesus says it's impossible. Now us, in our self-righteous, prideful, American, entrepreneurial, capitalism mindset, and understand I'm not speaking against any of those things, but I'm saying that what it does is when we have inflated pride because of those labels we put on ourselves, we try to prove Jesus wrong in this. 
not recognizing that we need to have a place of submission and humility before him and recognize, God, you're telling the truth. I've got to be all in on one. I can't be all in on both. Because here's one thing. If money gets a hold of you, you will hate God as a believer, as his child. It's possible. It's possible to happen. Let's do this. Let's put our fingers here in Romans 6. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Let's see a test case of how this plays out. Isn't it interesting that a lot of test cases you need to prove a doctrine are found in 1 Corinthians? We kind of chuckle when we go to that, oh yeah, those guys, we know we're going to find something here, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 12. And look what it says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable or beneficial. In other words, let's say it this way. It may be legal, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing to do. Why? Shocker, because the government might get it wrong. Look what he says here. I'm glad you guys have a sense of humor this morning. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered. I will not be authorized by anything. It will not serve as my authority as something that is greater than the calling of Christ. If you live in Colorado, you can smoke marijuana. It's legal. Does that mean that it's beneficial? Not necessarily. Who makes that decision? You do. As a Christian. It may be on TV, which means somebody approved it somewhere. Does that mean that you need to watch it? No. You may fall into the age range of the acceptable viewing label that's on there, whether it be G or PG or PG-13 or NC-17 or R, whatever it is. Does that mean that you should be watching it? No. So notice what Paul's saying. You may sit here and parade this idea, but it's legal, but it's legal. But just because the world approved of it, does that mean you need to be dabbling from it? Because will it profit anything? That's what we need to ask the question. It's not whether or not it's lawful. The question is, is it going to draw me closer to Jesus? In fact, there's your litmus test. Lick your finger, hold it to the wind. Is it drawing me closer to Jesus? No. Guess what? Set it on fire and walk away. You burn it down and you walk away. Verse 13. Here, and, and real quick, this should be in quotation marks. It should be because here was a common thing that they were saying at the time in Corinth. This was a saying in, 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 the, in the city of Corinth. Food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. Okay, so I didn't get a lot of amens after that. That's good. You're not subscribing to that. You remember like, yeah, everybody starts rubbing their belly. But... Notice that Paul corrects that thinking. But God will do away with both of them. God is superior to those things. In other words, notice that Paul is trying to rescue them from living on a worldly level. What the world accepts is true. That's okay for the Christian. Don't fall into that trap. The world is one of the three things that's against you in your life. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And guess who orchestrated the world? The devil. So let's think clearly about this. Look what he says after that. God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality. Now, I wish that the translators of the New American Standard Version for 1995 would have added in exactly what immorality this is talking about. And if you want to write it in, you can. We studied it not too long ago, but it's the idea of sexual immorality. In fact, it's the word porneia. It's the idea of anything that is considered uh, of unlawful sexual nature or intercourse being used. So it's very clear. Yet the body is not for sexual immorality. But for who? Notice that's the same thing that we're seeing about presenting your body as instruments of righteousness. Your body, if you're a believer in Christ, is for the Lord. That's who it belongs to. He has ownership on you. The title deed was signed in blood. Does everybody understand that? 
And here's the reason why, because if we understand more fully of God's love and care and ownership of us, we start to see sin and the darker picture of how it should be painted. It's Well, that's a matter of conscience. Don't fall into that trap either. Your conscience never disagrees with God. That's the whole reason why God gave you the conscience, was to lead you in paths of righteousness when you don't have the truth readily available. So notice it says here, it's not for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord is for my body. The Lord likes my body. Regardless of how you looked at your body while you were getting dressed this morning, regardless of the last time you had that shave a few pounds off when you looked in the mirror last time or whatever it was, regardless of our self-perception of us, the Lord is for us. Remember, the body is not something that's the same in the flesh. Context determines a meaning. He wants to use our bodies as instruments of righteousness. Look what he says after that. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Notice what he does. Not only is Jesus resurrected from the dead, but guess what? The very thing that Jesus is going to resurrect from the dead, as far as you're concerned, is your what? Body. How many people are with me? Raise your hand. Okay, if I have to start walking chairs, I will. Going down in between aisles. Your body. What's this called? When your body is resurrected. The rapture of the church. Jesus actually esteems your body as worth something because couldn't he easily catch our spirits up with him and just provide new bodies for us? Couldn't he do that? But what he does is he takes our old earthly, earthly bodies and he transforms them. He takes that which is perishable and corruptible and he makes it imperishable and incorruptible so it can stand before him in all fullness to see his face and also be used for his glorious purposes when the kingdom is established. Now that's a pretty big deal. He could have done away with the bodies completely, but notice what he's pointing it to. We raise Jesus bodily from the grave. That's what God did by his power. Guess what? He also wants to raise your body. That's how significant your body is. It belongs to God. He will raise it. His power will bring it up. That's the emphasis on our bodies. If we've somehow had a bad attitude towards how we look for our bodies, I promise you we're only looking at it in the temporal. We're not seeing it in the eternal. One day, this body decorated as it may be. And I am sure I'm going to have those when I stand before him. But I am going to be changed because I'm his son. He wants to use this body in eternity. It may stop for a little while. You guys might be making the process a little harder by cremating yourselves. I don't know what's going on with y'all. God can put it together, but why make him go through all that, right? I've never seen such cremating people up here. It's crazy. We bury everybody down south. Anyway, moving on. Notice, he wants to raise us up through his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of who? Christ, members of Christ. Now stop for a second. Didn't we talk about presenting our members as instruments of righteousness? We talk about that. So it means that the parts that we have here, eyes, ears, mind, hands, feet, what have have you, mouth, connected to us all in one whole, yes? Does everybody see that Paul automatically moves his argument to the value of your body? And he says, don't you know that you're a member of Christ? Now stop, here's what that means. It means that some of us play the role of fingers in the body of Christ. Some of us play hands. Some of us play wrists. Some of us play elbows. Some of us play funny bones. Probably not me. In the body of Christ. Do you not realize that you are so inseparably fused into Christ that there's really not a distinction of where he begins and you end. It's all melded together. It's all one. That's the value you have in him. Now watch how he moves on. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ? And notice the idea of that is like cutting off a hand cutting off an arm, cutting off an ear. Shall I take that away? And shall I make them members of a prostitute? Does that sound like anything anybody wants to do here? At least not outright, we would admit it, would we? 
And notice what he says. How does he, how does he finish that up? What's it say? May it what? May it never be. Does everybody realize that's the same double negative he's been using in Romans? He's saying, no. He's being very emphatic. Now, why do I bring that up? I don't want to harp on this sin too much, but I brought a little toad up here. If for no other reason that I want you to get this visual, because this has become one of the most dangerous things that we have ever seen in our lives. And I will tell you this, I have sit in many a counseling sessions with men. And they're saying, I got to deal with my sin. I'm so enslaved to pornography. I'm so caught up in it that I can't get free. You're a slave to sin. It's got its noose around you. It is choking you to death. Do you not realize that you're living hypocritically according to how the Lord has set you free? Yes, I understand that. I get that. Do you not realize that you're a new creation in Christ? Yes, I do. Do you not realize that you're dead to sin, that Jesus died to set you free? And when he died, you died with him. Notice it's all going back to identity, all going back to his identity in Christ as a reason why should notice that we're not, well, that's bad and that's wrong. And people will look at you funny. It's costing you a lot of money. And that's notice. It's not that. There's got to be more eternal reasons of grace that sets a person free. Not just shame, not just humiliating somebody. And then I ask this pivotal question. Bring me your power cord to your computer. You want to deal with sin seriously? Then let's cut it off. Notice I didn't ask for their monitor. I didn't ask for their keyboard. I didn't ask for their mouse. I didn't ask for their cable to the internet. Let's cut it off at the source. Let's deal with it. And you have never seen grown men scramble like you were threatening to empty their bank accounts for good. Because when they are even verbally agreeing with you about how united with Christ they are, and you say, you know what? Let's take the personal responsibility and stop presenting the members of our bodies as instrument for unrighteousness, and let's cut this thing off at the head so that it's no longer a temptation. You can't power it anymore. Uh, 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 but but, but I, I have emails I need to answer. But, but uh, you know, I, I do some work online. Well, I, I've got a paper that I'm, you're not even in school. What in the world are you talking about? Uh, 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 uh. See, this is what it's talking about. This is why identity matters. Because sin is a problem. And I'm not worried about talking about how sin is a problem from the world. The fact that I would expect better from the world means that I made the mistake of putting some inkling of hope in the world to get better. That was dumb. That was dumb. And let me say this as an aside because we're coming up on it. If you think for voting for one person is somehow establishing a mark of righteousness because there might be a same or different president that's going to lead it, that's dumb. Let me say it plainly, because hope is not found in this world. And the idea that this would serve as a noose on somebody's neck who is a believer that could live for the glory of God, and it is choking them to death. And they can't even serve their king. Everybody see how dumb that is. That's not how we've learned Christ. He has died for our sins. He has died to sin. And he has set us free. To where now, because I have the right basis of which to operate, I can step back and say, no more. Sorry, Corey. So thankful I didn't hit you with that. But be done with it. I heard a statistic. 
at least 22% of men sitting in the average local church is currently struggling with pornography right now. The reason why they won't ask for help is because they're ashamed of being exposed. Shall we take the mind that belongs to Jesus Christ and take it away from him and give it to a prostitute? Does that make sense? Does it make sense for somebody who operates in a sphere of grace to remove themselves in everything but reality? Because that's what pornography is. It's a fantasy. And to place themselves into a position to where they're seeking to be one with someone else? May it never be. So notice how he moves on with this. Verse 16, do you not know? Notice that again. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? He says the two shall become one flesh. Uh Uh-oh. Where did Paul just go to prove his point? Genesis. A man will leave his father and mother. For all you mama's boys out there, that's your verse. A man will leave his father and mother and will cling, cleave to his wife. Don't go talk to mom. Talk to your wife. If your wife's going to have kids, she doesn't need to raise you at the same time. Get away from that. We have a male epidemic problem here in, in America. Fatherlessness has cost us. Even when fathers have been present, if they haven't been engaged, it's done nothing but worse for the church. What's he saying here? You join yourself to a prostitute like that, regardless if it's real or virtual. If you're married, you've committed adultery. If you're not married, it's still sexual immorality. But you're now one flesh with that person. I'm going to tell you a secret, guys, because of how guys fantasize in their minds about this stuff. She ain't going to look good for that long. I know that sounds crass, but marriage is about so much deeper than skin. So much deeper. So Paul's trying to get these people to recognize, and here's what's probably happened. Does everybody see that the reason why he's probably addressing this is because this is something that's going on amongst believers in the church? Does everybody see that? This is not a situation that's just, well, we don't act like that now. Don't be foolish. Of course we do. We do all kinds of things behind the scenes that we don't want anybody to know about, and the whole reason why we're on this is to get beyond that so we start living gloriously, not in a worldly fashion. Look what he says, verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit. Everybody see that with him is in italics, it's not in the original. You are one spirit with the Lord. Isn't that on our bookmarks that we have, the who I am in Christ? I'm one spirit with the Lord. Everybody remember this? I'm one spirit with the Lord. Notice that Paul appeals to identity. Does everybody see that the way that Paul addresses sin is he goes back and he says, wait a second, that's not who you are. You lost sight of who you are. That's not your identity. So now he says, since that's not your identity, since you've been joined with Christ, you're one spirit with them. You are so melded together that there's complete continuity. What's the prescription? Verse 18, flee immorality. Everybody remember when I did that little dance about flee last week? Flee it. Run. How do I present myself to righteousness and not the members of my body in unrighteousness. The first thing you do is you need to take initiative because of who you are in Christ. Recognize the sin in front of you and run in the opposite direction. Notice it doesn't say deal with it, pray through it, call on other people to pray for you, collect a whole legal pad full of verses in order to address it. That's called procrastination. It's one of the greatest spiritual gifts of the church. And not a good spiritual gift. Paul says, flee, run for your life from pornography and adultery, from sexual immorality. Run, run as if you didn't make it. Think of Indiana Jones with the ball flying behind him. Get out that cave. 
Go. Flee. Run. Flee immorality, sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. Uh-oh. Are some sins more heinous than others? Yes, they are. Watch this. But the sexual immorality man sins against his own body. Now, here's a problem. Is your body's not just yours, is it? Who does your body belong to? Christ. Your body is the Lord's and the Lord's for your body. So how many of you would want to sit down and watch pornography with Jesus? That's serious, is it not? How many of you would like to have an emotional affair so that Jesus could type in on your text messages while you're doing it? Anybody? How many of you would like to have that secret meeting up place and make sure that Jesus is in the passenger seat when you go to meet that person? Nobody's willing to take Jesus with you. Guess what? He's already going. He's already there. When we think for some reason that we've hidden sin, we've denied the basic attribute of the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. Well, he doesn't know that I'm there. You've forgotten Genesis 1. Well, I can go there and he won't be there. You've forgotten Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, I heard you coming and, and I hid. Everybody remember that excuse? See, that's what's amazing. Is that when Adam got entangled with sin, he forgot about who God is too. I mean, those are basic that, that, when you sit down with somebody to disciple them and love them, that's, those are basic things you teach about God. This is who God is. The very elementary things out the window. So now notice what it says here. Verse 19, do you not know? Notice he appeals again to the identity. Do you not know that your body, everybody think about it, your body, your body right now sitting right here, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a sanctuary. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Your body is a place of worship. For those out there that are those risky charismatics that do this, praise God. Am I faulting you if you don't? No. But what I'm saying is, is why not get our whole body involved in worship? Some people used to prostrate themselves to the ground. Carpet's brand new. It should smell good. Get down there. All right? Some people that refused to get up because they just wanted to worship God. What would it be like if we got beyond these mental strongholds of worrying about what everybody else is going to think of us and deem us failures if all we cared about was getting a glimpse of God? I guarantee you this, sin would take a very, very, Large back seat. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Now, here's what that does. That eliminates you being the sole factor that makes the decision. I now got to get God involved. Should you go to Denny's or not? Guess what? Pray about it. I would pray long and hard about it. Anybody eaten at Denny's recently? Okay, praise God. But seriously, but think about it. Lord, what do you want? Lord, what do you want here? Lord, these people need help. How should I help them? And notice that it is a cut. Here's what you're doing. You're constantly presenting what you're going to do next, which is going to flesh out through your body. You're constantly presenting it to him. God, what do you want? You know what you're asking? Use my instruments for righteous purposes. And it's submission. See, that's why this is so dirty for people. But here's the thing. If we go back to what Paul said in Romans 6, you're either a slave to righteousness or slave to sin. There is no middle ground here. There is no middle ground. Now watch how he moves this forward. Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. What's the price? What did it cost to buy us? The blood of Jesus. His death on the cross purchased each and every one of us. High price? Yeah, 
That tells us two things. It tells us just how bad our sin is, that divine blood need to be shed. Perfect blood. But get this, don't lose sight of this. Don't look at it one-sided. It also tells you how much God thinks that you're worth because of the price he was willing to pay. Everybody see how precious you are in his sight? See, sin doesn't make sense when we think about the idea of preciousness. And notice it's identity again. Identity, identity. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, that God gave to you. And not only that, God paid for you. That's who your identity is. Your identity is the fact that you're a bought person. Look what he says. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, what's the result? Glorify God in your body. That's what it looks like. Let me state it another way. You and I don't have to sin. If that sounds like a hypocritical, contradictory statement to you, it's not. We don't have to sin. As believers in Christ, we choose to sin. Sometimes it's because we just automat- we're on automatic pilot. We live out flesh patterns that we had previously. Sometimes it's very purposeful in our lives that we seek to sin. Sometimes you just lie and you can't understand, why did I just lie there? Because it comes so naturally. Because that's how we've always dealt with things in the past. No, guess what? Now we have the capacity because of all that Jesus has done to glorify God in this. Amazing. Go back to Romans 6. Let's finish it up. Notice in 6.16, we have a choice. You're slaves to somebody. Who are you obeying? There's a good question to ask. Who am I obeying in any given moment? It's your choice. You can either obey God or you can obey sin. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you are slaves to sin... And I think that's talking about Christians. I don't expect for Christians, brand new believers in Christ, to become amazingly obedient saints of God. Are they saints of God? Yes. Obedient? I don't expect it. I'm getting ready to have a really good reminder of what that's like to be a baby Christian. We're getting ready to deal with diapers. We're getting ready to deal with slobber. We're getting ready to deal with puke. You know what that testifies to me? Baby Christians that need to be trained up, loved up, cared for, addressed, embraced. And that's how the church should deal with them as well. So notice, thanks be to God that you were slaves to sin. That's who you used to be when you were walking in the flesh patterns that you created while you didn't have the Holy Spirit. But look what it says. You became obedient If you want the technical word for that, that's called progressive sanctification. You became obedient, which means as you learn more about God through his word, you started to apply what you learned about God in his word because of who you are in Christ, and you started to live differently. That's how we know it's not about unregenerate to regenerate. This is a works passage, not a faith passage. So look what it says here. You became obedient from the where? The heart, there it is, to that form, that kind, that model of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, because your mind was convinced and then your heart became convicted, all of a sudden your body was used as instruments of righteousness. Look what he says here. And having been freed from sin, notice that the principle of sin is what it's talking about. We've been freed from that as well. You became slaves of righteousness. You've changed masters. God is now your master. You are now his slave. God is completely unapologetic about that whatsoever. That would be a heinous thought if God were not the greatest thing to ever be ever. But he is the supreme deity. He is the creator. Everything else is creations. So it's not arrogant whatsoever. It's just right. 
Notice it says here, verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, I'm having to use the master and slave picture here for you to understand so that you can kind of begin to grasp. He knows that it's a crude way to address it, but so that you can begin to grasp what your new relationship is and, and that if you make the mistake of entertaining sin, you've exchanged masters for one who's not really your master. He says here, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, now stop, stop for just a second. Don't anybody say it out loud. We're not getting that far into public confession. But can you think of times before you knew Jesus that you presented yourself, your members, to impurity and lawlessness? Or another way to translate that is filth and rebellion. Can we think of that? We can probably all think of that somewhere here. We choose not to want to remember it. I understand that. I don't either. But here's the thing. We know that at one time we were in that boat. Now watch what he says here. As you presented, pay attention to this, as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, notice this, resulting in further lawlessness. Why? Because that's the fruit you got out of what you were presenting your body to. Okay, so just as that's how you used to do it, and you got what you got out of it that way, look what he says here. So now, and that is, so now that you're in Christ, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now, let me say this. Everybody see the word sanctification? It's the same idea, and your translation might have this, holiness. So watch this. When you used to live your life before you knew Christ, there were ways that you went about making sure that your lust, desires, and sins got accomplished. You did certain things to make sure that those itches were scratched. And you didn't care what it cost you, and you didn't care who was along for the ride as long as you got what you wanted. That's the approach that you took. So now notice that he's saying here, as you presented your members to slaves, how did you do that? That's the question to ask. How did you used to present yourselves to be used as unrighteous things? Make a list. I made a little list. How did I used to be unrighteous? What did I do to make sure that my unrighteousness would be fulfilled? This is uplifting. But think about it real quick. Here's some things I came up with. How about going out of my way? Have you ever gone out of your way before to sin? Well, it's going to take me longer to get there, but this is over here. It's just a little turn of the wheel. It's just a reprogramming of the GPS. And next thing you know, sins galore. Is that good? No. How about this? Making special plans. Have we ever made special plans to make sure that sin would be involved in a situation? Yeah? Anytime that you went out to score weed for a party, that was making a special plan for it. Anytime that you knew you were going somewhere because there was going to be drunk people, get in there. Anytime that you thought you could get away with cheating on your taxes. If it was just you in the house and you were watching Oprah, me personally, I consider that a sin. <laughs> but you made plans to do it. How about this next one? How about inviting others along? Have you ever noticed that sins are way easier to commit when other people are in cahoots with you? Come on, let's go, right? Not a big deal. Let's all do it. In fact, isn't that the end of Romans 1 verse 32? Even though knowing the people who do such things deserve death, they not only do them, but they applaud those who participate as well. We're all in this together. Sin makes more sense when you have a majority Think about that one and how it relates today. But if we got more people along, it's okay. It's not okay. It may be lawful. It's not beneficial. How about this? Paying expenses personally. You ever realized how much money sin costs us? Anybody recognize how many missionaries wouldn't suffer on the mission field if we just directed, redirected our sin funds for glorious purposes, that we would exalt righteousness is the idea. How about this? How about it consumed your thinking? I can't tell you how many, just over here at Walmart, you ever notice that the people over here at Walmart like to tell you how much they love their job? Sorry, Deb. I haven't heard Deb say that. I haven't. 
Well, if they're going to make me do this, then I'm just going to clock out and go home. I've, I've, I've wanted desperately to be an undercover inspector for Walmart to be like, guess what? You can go home forever. Ching. I want to do that so bad, so bad. But it consumed thinking. When I get off work, I can't wait to this. Well, when the weekend comes, it's going to be this. And it consumes your thinking. And it propels you to get through the mundane things that you've surrounded yourself with so you can have this mass explosion of sin at the end of it. It builds up to it. How about at the end here? Last one I've got. I'm willing to be inconvenienced so that I can have sin in my life. You ever notice that you will put up with anything as long as you can get your sin issue scratched? You'll even put up with certain people. For some reason, my mind wants to go to the party atmosphere. All of you in here seem like partiers. (laughs) But the idea of what we get involved with, you'll put up with the most obnoxious person in the world as long as you can get yours at some point. As long as you can make sure that you're satisfied by depraved things. Now think about what Paul's saying if these are all the ways that we used to present ourselves unrighteousness. Think about what he's saying here. As you presented your members to filth and rebellion, those avenues that you used to take to make sure that those sins were fleshly satisfying realities in your life, now that you know Jesus, flip that around and get involved in righteous purposes. Think about it. what it would look like if the church did this. What if you went out of your way for righteousness to be the pinnacle? What if it cost you time? What if you went, well, I was planning on doing this, but now I need to back up and do this. Do you realize that if just 20% of the body would be inconvenienced in their normal plans of day in and day out, For the sake of promoting righteousness, putting their arms around somebody's hurting, encouraging them, building them up, lifting them up, loving them, sharing the gospel with other people, taking the time to sit down and disciple as we're mandated to do in Romans, or sorry, Matthew chapter 28. If we were out making disciples of people and it was costing us personal time to invest in others, you know what that's called? It's got a word, revival. That's what it's called. It's called that the Holy Spirit sets this place on fire and people can't even sit down. Why? Because Jesus has become the main point of everything I stand for now. Why? Because I was willing to go out of my way to make sure that happened. That's how I used to present myself to sin. Now I'm going to present myself to righteousness that way. How about this? Making special plans. When's the last time we made special plans to exalt the righteousness of God? When's the last time that we made special, and maybe this is something that you do, and that's great, but when's the last time that we decided, when we looked at our calendar schedule, I'm going to sit sit aside something so that God's glory is the chief in this? Hopefully it's every day, but even if it was just one day out of your calendar, wouldn't that make a difference? Again, the result would be revival. How about inviting others along? When's the last time you invited somebody to church? I know, I would, but they won't stay long, awake that long. I know. When's the last time you said to somebody, hey, would you come to church with me? Well, I don't have a ride. I'll come pick you up. See, that's the thing is you start eliminating your excuses. What if we went out of our way to invite somebody? We used to invite people to participate in sin with us. What's Paul doing here? In the same way that you used to do that, now go get people and invite them to come along with you for righteousness. For God's glory. How about the next one here? Paying expenses personally. When's the last time that you took somebody out to eat for lunch after church? It might be a visitor. Take that plunge. Take that step. It's not a bad investment. There could be somebody here that is hurting. And they just can't talk about it. And because we took time out of our busy day with as crammed as it is, fulfilling our agenda, we reach forward our hand and we love somebody else for a change. I guarantee you, that life is much more satisfying than what we might be settling for. How about this? Does it consume your thinking? Aren't we told to be renewed in our minds with the word of God? Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Well, if I do that, I might start speaking to people in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and that's weird. Yeah, it is. 
And what it is, it's a mark of you don't belong here. And we need more of that. We need more evidence of people that don't belong here. Our citizenship is not here. How about this, willing to be inconvenienced? This is the hardest one. Isn't it interesting that when we wanted to scratch the itch of sin, we were willing to be inconvenienced at the drop of a hat? Now we really wrestle with whether or not we will let go of ourselves for the sake of other people. Guys, this is what he's talking about. Why is that? Because look at what he says at the end of that. Resulting in what? Sanctification. Resulting in us being further set apart by God for his purposes. That's the definition of holiness. Holiness isn't that you float. Holiness isn't that you gleam white. Holiness is is that God begins setting you apart for his special purposes. Why? Because you're an obedient disciple who is presenting themselves for his purposes. The greatest model of this, Jesus Christ. Not my will, but your will be done. I didn't come to do my will, but the will of the Father. He teaches us what it is to present the members of our body as instruments of righteousness. I don't think this is unreasonable. But my fear is, is that we've not taken advantage of it. So let's make a commitment today between us. Can we do that as a church? (laughs) You're like, I guess. Trust me on this. I pray that I haven't led you astray. Let's make a commitment on this. You got a pen. It's very simple to write down. It's not anything profound. It's not anything I'm coming up with, some new tactic to live your life. Seven ways to a better you. I'm not doing any of that stuff. What if we just made it our daily prayer? Maybe you need to set a reminder in your phone. What if our daily prayer was, Lord, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to you in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I am presenting myself to you as alive and the members of my body's instruments of righteousness. What if that was our prayer for this week? Every day, every day. Should we still spend time in confession of sin? Sure. But if we're sitting in a position where we're sitting here saying, God, I want to embrace everything that you've already said is true and that is already true about me, and now I want to live out of that reality. So here's my mind. Use it for your glory. You know what you'll find? You will find that all of a sudden you want to get rid of this. In fact, if I come in next Sunday and I've got a whole lot of these sitting in front of my office door, I can't tell you how elated I would be. You know what you find? You find that all of a sudden this doesn't matter anymore. You find that you've looked at it and you've seen it as the damnable thing that it is. Because anything that separates you from fellowship with your Savior is the enemy. You start drawing solid lines. And is it because you started doing something different? No, it's because you started embracing who you really are as God has told you. And you now you are saying, use me for what I was meant to do as you do it through me. It's just submission. It's just coming to him and saying, God, there are no better answers. You've given the answer. You've already answered it. And Jesus Christ is that answer. Let's pray. Father, we are a people that are dead to sin. And we are alive to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, I pray this week our prayer would be just that in asking the question. Use my hands. Will you please use my hands for your righteous purposes? Father, will you use my mind to be thinking according to the word of God? 
Will you use my ears for things that only glorify you? Father, will you use my mouth? We think about all the things that come out of the mouth. That it is a revealer of our hearts. Father, will you please use our mouth as an instrument, as a weapon for your righteous purposes. And I pray, God, that whatever blinders have been imposed on us, either by sin, refusal to come to you and deal with it, thinking that we can handle it, all of these self-made methods that we would repent and recognize these sinful things have got to go. We thank you that we're bought with a price. We thank you that one day you will resurrect this body, this body that fails us and aches and hurts and desires wrong things. You will change it to be perfectly suitable and sufficient to stand before the face of Jesus. We have such a glorious calling. And too often we settle and we live far short. But because of what you've done, we don't need to do that anymore. God, help us. Help us to see that. Help our hearts to be convinced by the truth of this. How pivotal pivotal it is that we let Christ live through us. Thank you, Jesus, for making it possible. We pray it in his name. Amen.